SequelCast 2 is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. Should you escape us, Dracula? We know how to save Miss Mina's soul, if not her life. If she dies by day, but I shall see that she dies by night. Welcome to uh, Sequel Cast 2. Uh, with me, we have a guest that you've heard on the show a lot, whether you've realized it or not. He's been doing our theme song since uh, almost the very beginning. Uh, gee, it's been, what, like 10 years now. It's hard to believe. Um, Mark with the C, welcome to Sequel Cast 2. Hello, and thank you. And I think this is the first time that I've spoken on the second coming of sequel cast is, um, is my memory right yes. on that uh, yeah yeah you're correct we've the, the second coming uh simply called sequel cast two because we're a bit cheeky here uh it has been around for about two years and uh right. I, I think we've we've both been respectively busy trying to work things out but when i noticed you had uh, a lot of things going on um it just seemed like a good opportunity to uh do a quick little uh Conversa- conversation, interview, discussion, whatever you want to call this, because um, it looks like you have uh, a few things all coming out uh, or on or around December 6, 2019. You have a two CD or, or three record set called Maybe It'll Be Good, The Best of Mark with the C. And you also have a uh, book with the same name and a podcast you've been working on where uh, you get interviewed about the discography on your career, kind of the flip side of your discography podcast in which you look at uh, various artists, uh, complete work, uh, album by album, more or less. You just did my job for me, and thank you so much for doing that. You you nailed <laughs> it. You got all of them. There's the only thing that I don't think that you mentioned, well, I know that you didn't mention it because I, I haven't uh, said anything about it, Coming out next week is going to be a form for those who are interested in helping me host non-traditional tour dates. That means no actual venues are eligible. Um, Because to celebrate 20 years, I've done things in a very me kind of way. And I don't tour. I'll go out for the occasional show here or there if someone in, you know, Montana wants to, you know, if there's a cluster of Mark with a C fans that are just damned and determined that I'm going to end up there. I love doing that. But, you know, the the touring circuit grind and sleeping in the back of a van and like next to the the dog water and the, you know, (laughs) the cat hair. That was never my calling. I, I was always write the song first, record it first touring is secondary that was just how i worked so uh there's going to be a chance for fans to jump in and i might be coming directly to you but more on that later but yes that would be the only thing that you didn't mention and the only reason you didn't mention it is because you didn't know well now i know and uh, people listening to this uh will know I, i should have this up um sometime this week but i think most likely on friday or something so after the these things get 
released with the the album and the book maybe it'll be good uh about mark about you uh mark and uh i i did read a little excerpt from the book that was on amazon that was a story about mushrooms uh <laughs> which was rather amusing and just just looking at all the albums available on uh on your website i seem to recall um I don't know if this was the last time I had you on here, but it might have been. I had you on once to talk about your uh, 10-year uh, compilation, Retro Lo-Fi. And when you did this longer um, version uh, of the Maybe It'll Be Good that's a two-disc set, did you find it um, more difficult to have more room to put albums for a best-of uh, concept uh, compilation? Or did, did you just like... Uh, like doing it did you like that freedom having more space to work with or did you feel like you you had to leave songs off that were on the first compilation or you could reuse things or how, how did you approach that um importantly there there were uh i guess like two main compilations that had sort of guided people as an entry point for Mark with the C records, uh, one was the one that you mentioned, uh, the Retro Lo-Fi 10-year anniversary compilation. Then we did one about 15 years in called An Introduction to Mark with a C, hmm. and that was a much shorter one. Uh, what we did for Maybe It'll Be Good, and this is Im important, um, I, I literally started a Facebook group for hardcore fans to vote um, album by album, and we did this. We have been working on this for a couple of years now. So I would give people time to discuss and um, kind of almost argue their favorites if they felt the need to. So these were literally voted on by about the most hardcore fans that I've got. They decided the track list, and the only thing that I stepped in for, I think, was to break some ties. And I, I think I had to get pretty creative for some songs where the masters were missing. But uh, past that, I mostly had to figure out what order to put it in. Mm. Uh, it was really the audience that tells me what the best is. Because if I were to make what I truly believe the best of Mark with a C is, it probably wouldn't have any of these songs. But it's not up to me. I write for myself, but I put it out you know, when I think it's something you might like, whoever you are. And it's really up to the audience to tell me when I got that right. And I, I'm happy to hand that to them. That's why. Otherwise, I'm basically just making a playlist and going, here you go. Um, people seem to like this shit. Give me money. No. <laughs> Mark with a C, importantly, as a persona, is an interactive singer, songwriter, and storyteller. So if I was not interacting with the audience to make this, it kind of wasn't Mark with a C. Well, and the internet has, has really uh, changed so much over the past uh, 20 years of your career. I mean, did you have like a, a MySpace page and so forth? Uh, oh, God, yeah. Back in the day where, I mean, that was a huge thing about MySpace for me is you could just toss up music on there uh individually like I, I and i mean i don't do a whole lot of music i do a little bit but it, that uh it was a, a venue for that was you know somewhat interesting and now uh w with phones you have you know computers in your pocket and uh what was i, I was watching uh i think rocky four the other day that's the one where he goes to russia and they have the robot that has a boom box and uh, he talks to people and you can make phone calls 
and this thing weighs like 400 pounds and it made me think well your cell phone is the same as the robot from rocky 4 you know i think there's a meme waiting to be born and you have just <laughs> struck some serious internet gold go forth and be the voice of your generation friend yes yes i must uh, hop on my photoshop uh non-union equivalent immediately uh, <laughs> put that together uh but yeah so um looking over these different things you have done and doing this this podcast where uh you, you talk about your past albums do you re-listen to the whole album and sometimes feel embarrassed with the older stuff or is there things that you uh find you, you take away now that's a bit different uh, as you sort of work through your career on uh on, on the podcast uh, talking about your entire body of work to date for doing that podcast, which is a sub-series of The Us Show, which is uh, recorded uh, where I live in Florida, I I literally, well, uh, you know, I post on Instagram uh, every week like, hey, here are the records that I was able to make time to listen to this week. A lot of the time if I hear my own stuff, it's kind of for functionality, like, oh, okay, let me refresh myself real quick. But that's mm. about it. I don't really listen to it as a listener experience. And in the case of the evolution of Mark with a C series, that's what I'm doing. Uh, and I, I, I won't even listen ahead. This is how seriously oh. I'm taking it. I wait until the drive there. And because huh. uh, it takes like about 45 minutes for me to get to the Us Show studios. So when, uh, when we just recorded one which was an incredibly raw episode and i i'm telling you like keep your tissues handy this is going to mm. be a weeper we did uh we just recorded last month one on shock treatment my shock treatment interpretations ah, yes. album and it ended up being the heaviest episode and i i could not have predicted that coming in now do i feel embarrassed about things of course i do um <laughs> anybody who's well Think about anything you were doing 20 years ago, and if you you still had to answer for it every day as entertainment, oh, absolutely, oh you would you would probably feel the same. Uh, but I I've never been able to have enough time away to have the remove to actually hear these things as you know you might until mm. now. <laughs> like now I'm far enough away from it to listen back and go, what the hell was I thinking? What was what what could people have taken away from them? And I found that mostly the read that people seem to have on the records, at least in the first five, because that's as far as we've gotten now, uh, they, they, they seem to be right. My first record is a great record by somebody else, but they happen to be using my songs. Uh, the producer really kind of just took that over. And I didn't know better at the time, and I didn't know a producer wasn't supposed to do that. So for all I knew, he was just doing his job, and, you know, he probably was too in his own head. The second record, Bubblegum Romance, uh, people seem to think it's the most real and raw and most very uh, – not very uh, – most emblematic of what it just sounds like for me to sing in a room and play guitar. And I think they're dead on about that. It a lot of the concepts from Bubblegum Romance are the ones that I'm still going back to today. And the third mm. record, This World is Scary as Fuck, everybody told me this is just such a dark, weird record. Mark, what the hell's going on? 
I, I didn't know where they were coming from. So when I heard that thing for the first time, and well, literally since I'd mastered it for vinyl, um, I was blown away by how right they really were huh. and how I have no idea what my thought process was. So these all almost end up becoming a therapy session. I get blindsided with stuff from my past. Well, not blindsided, but, you know, just hit for like 40 minutes with, Mark, here's all the stuff you did that year. Now go talk about it. And I have to, I don't even have time to think it out. So I'm working it out on the microphone. You're literally listening to me coming to terms with my past on that show. It's great stuff. It, it made um, me think of, uh, uh, you were saying earlier, you know, you kind of do your music, you put it out there, then people... Um, interpret it or, or consume it or, or have you know their own reaction to it which is of course often different than whatever you had in mind when you recorded it or, or mastered it or whatnot uh when uh, my my co-host uh, thrasher and myself did, did sequel cast early on on um, for whatever reason facebook seems to be the most way people get in contact with us but we had a listener from oh um like sweden or, or finland or something like that reach out to us and and uh, he he allowed us to read his letter on the air, but our our kind of dumb little podcast that talks about old movie sequels uh, was something that uh, he listened to to stop from killing himself. And I, I never would have thought, um, I'm getting emotional talking about it right now, but I never would have thought some little like talk show I've been doing with my friend from college would have that effect on someone. So, uh, oh, friend, listen, I can relate to that, and yeah. importantly, I I just want to. I, I, this probably isn't what you signed up for when you brought that up, but what you're doing with your podcast, it, it matters. If, if there, oh, no matter you. how niche, no matter yeah. how niche anything is, there's an audience and anything with an audience ought to have a platform, period. You're always free to turn away unless, you know, we're really as Orwellian as, <laughs> as it <laughs> seems to be going. But right now you, you still have the ability to look away and you've got the ability to look for very specific things. That's really neat. And you know, that guy, obviously he needs what you do. And yes, sure. I always look at it this way. Um, there was something when I did my first radio show, uh, my, the first one that I hosted on FM radio, mm. I was told if you get a call and someone says, um, Hey, I hate this song or, Hey, I love this song. Assume that there are 1000 other people that feel exactly the same way. They just mm. didn't call. So that's sort of the approach that I take when I'm not really sure how something's landing. If somebody will tell me I like such and such song, I think, okay, well, now I could probably add like 100 to 200 people at least to that. And ditto for your your podcast. It was so clearly what they needed, and art and entertainment, and heck, just talking about our passions. It makes us feel better sometimes about what we might have thought was a guilty pleasure. No, what you do matters, and I can absolutely see that type of correspondence come through. And I'm, I'm glad that your show was there for that person. Uh, I am as well, and uh, no, no, thanks very much for that. It's very kind. Um, so, as um, it looks like the the length of your book, uh, at least according to Amazon, is a few hundred pages. Um, I I finished a book uh, myself over the past uh, year or two, and it really struck me that it is a a real discipline, and it's different than doing something like say writing an essay for school, 
and and as you you sort of mentioned uh, on um you know music is therapy or listening to your old stuff is therapy i'm sure writing it is uh your uh your book as well maybe it'll be good uh probably brought up a lot of memories and and things uh that was probably pretty intense at times oh oh absolutely but it wasn't as concentrated as as one would think i i believe mm. i started the book i was writing it probably 2014 and uh i wrote until i caught up to the present and then the second portion of the book goes into i i kept literal daily diaries oh great so, because nobody I, I i've said this in a number of other interviews about the book but um it it still stands people at my level where you know we're just culty diy musicians and uh, some folks hear us and go, what does anybody see in that? Well, our stories never really get told past just being a weird culty DIY performer or artist. And very, very rarely do people understand just how deeply an outsider DIY musician has to live their art if you've ever heard of it. You've got to eat, sleep, vomit that being that persona. And it was important that Mark with a C was a persona so mm. I could turn it off. So I could go back to being Mark Sardorius, human being, private citizen. And I was going through it during writing the book, legitimately having to like vomit it onto the page, whatever was distracting me from getting to be Mark with a C that day. The book was going to be probably around 2,000 pages. Uh, we just mm. edited that diary way down. <laughs> There's, I think the diary begins in 2015, and it ends in April of this year. That's that's uh, great. I've been considering doing a, a diary, and I think I, I, I probably should... Maybe I'll maybe at the new year or something I'll I'll pick it up and and start then. Um, because I've been reading some of people I enjoy. Uh, Michael Palin, one of the actors from Monty Python, has mm -hmm. like three, I don't know, like six hundred page volumes, uh, sort of of excerpts from his diaries from the Python days all the way to his travel shows on the BBC. And um, what I read that was quite bizarre was a uh, Isaac Asimov did these two, I don't know, thousand page colossus. Uh, memoirs that are really just diaries, but it gets so specific as he he says like day by day what he argued uh, about with his wife on that day, or exactly how many, much money down to the penny he earned in royalties that month, um, and that you, I don't know, just that, that those people would, would choose to write about their uh, lives in such different fashions. It almost feels um, invasive, like you shouldn't be reading it. But they at the end they decided to to publish it. And I, I assume with diaries, you know, everyone writes it a bit differently. Yeah. It, it does get incredibly specific like that at points, but not really with the money because, well, I don't, I don't have any, but um, <laughs> that said, it gets incredibly specific to like, um, there's a song that's on, on the last a full-length studio album of original material called Obscurity. The song's called Your Goddamn Birthday. But mm. in the book, you actually find uh, the date that I found this old recording and turned it into another song, which... And then you sort of watch the progress of me going, ah, I've still got to finish that, that birthday song I found. And 
it can be that specific, but maybe not about stuff that anybody wanted to know. And that's why the story kind of needs to be told. What anybody else's favorite stuff is, I can't really answer for. I My job is just to produce it and get it to the point where I think I like it. That's the most important part. I have to like it. So anything you've ever heard from me, at some point, I thought it was a good idea. Yep, even those early ones. But you live, you learn, you write books to say, I've changed everybody. Um, <laughs> or um, just to have some catharsis, to let people know what was behind the... Uh, you know, recently in the last decade, there was a song that came very early on in my career, but it sort of built up steam and like a following of its own. This song called Music Can Heal. And honestly, I've been going through it like everybody else has in 2019. But just being able to have this type of catharsis, just having this outlet where I don't even have to release anything if I don't want to, but... Mm. I can just pick up my guitar and that's considered going to work. If I didn't have that, you and I would not be talking right now because I would not even be here. Music can't, <laughs> it, it not only can heal, it is healing me. Just the fact that I get to do it at all, let alone listen to other people's great music. It's, it's the, it's like the best privilege ever given. Yeah, there's um, uh, the author Stephen King has a quote from his memoir on writing. It's something along the lines of uh, life is not a support system for art. It's the other way around. And uh, absolutely. It, yeah. And it's it's hard to put it better, better than that. Um, I suppose I should bring up a movie or two since this will end up uh, interview will end up on a movie on my movie podcast. Um, have you seen either the uh the recent biopics uh, bohemian rhapsody or rocket man i have not seen rocket man i did okay. see bohemian rhapsody uh what did you think of bohemian rhapsody i think they did an absolutely outstanding job making wembley arena when you were looking at the audience uh, mm. feel very real that's my review yeah, um, I think that I was glad I saw it in a theater for the sound mix, especially in those uh, live aid scenes. I thought it was very strong, uh, and that the version it, it tells of Queen's story is, if you've read any biographies or seen a VH1 behind the music or something, is is fairly ridiculous at times. But if yeah, if you like, if you, <laughs> yeah, uh, but if you enjoy. You know, sort of a more Broadway style musical. You might like Rocket Man more uh, when you get around to seeing it. I certainly did. Well, I'm absolutely uh, interested in seeing Rocket yeah. Man with Bohemian Rhapsody. I, I'm actually much more into Queen than Elton, and uh, mm -hmm. no knock against Elton. That's just sure. where it sits in my personal pantheon. Uh, with Bohemian Rhapsody, I just I was gobsmacked that they would, one, make Roger Taylor get mad at Freddie for going solo when Roger Taylor went solo first. Yes. Um, <laughs> and secondly, come on, are we really just going to literally whitewash over the fact that the whole reason Queen ended up at Live Aid was kind of to cover their ass because they went to Sun City and crossed apartheid lines for a paycheck? Really? We're just going to leave that out and we're going to pretend Queen broke up? We're going to do that too? 
We're going to we're going to do all of those things and pretend they happened. Wow. So it's a it's a wonderful story. I just wish it was Queens. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, too, that it was essentially, uh, although not credited as such, uh, directed by by two directors. And, and I forget the guy's name, but the guy who directed um, a, a lot of the film towards the end when Brian Singer was uh, was let go or fired or whatever, whatever happened. Uh, did do Rocket Man, and uh, they, I think there's there's quite two different approaches to the the biopic, which is a pretty um, you know well trodden, uh, although enjoyable uh, genre of film. All right, well, Mark, uh, well, thank you so much for for this discussion about maybe it'll be good, the best with Mark with the C, and the book uh, also titled Maybe It'll Be Good. Uh, people can pick it up at uh, markwiththec.com, and if people want um, more information on you or your work is uh, is Facebook the, the best place for it? Or I see you have all sorts of links on your website to different social media. Actually, avenues. you hit it right there, right up top at markwithac.com. Yep. There's these icons that'll take you to pretty much everywhere I do things on the web, including the Patreon that sort of fills in the gaps since streaming sort of took over physical media, but the money didn't exactly match that takeover. So now we had to invent tip jars all over again. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, basically markwithac.com because all the music's right there in your face. If that's all you want, you don't even really have to deal with me. You can just go to the song. Or if you really want to deal with me, there is about eight ways to do it up top. Fantastic. Well, um, thank you so much for uh, doing this interview, Mark. It'll be a pleasure. I'm sure we'll do one again at some point in the future. Thank you for having future. me and, and thank you for doing what you do. Oh, 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 you're welcome. Uh, thank you so much for the uh, theme songs and, uh, yeah, the music you did for the Frankenstein's Bastard Daughter video game uh, uh, all those years ago. It really means a lot to me. The fact that you commissioned me to do it means a lot to me. Stuff like that keeps me going as well. We'll just be a mutual appreciation society, Matt. Absolutely. Um yeah, uh, and in fact, it's funny you mentioned shock treatment being emotional uh, when you talked about that album. That's the first way I stumbled upon you was a, a link to those uh, covers and I think much more lo-fi version several years ago. And I said, well, I'm doing a podcast like this guy's music. Maybe he'll do, uh, we can work out something. And uh, we have, and we're talking all these years later still. So, um, yep, I'll, uh, thank, thanks again. And I will... Uh, put a link to the uh, album and the book in the show notes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me on and enjoy the rest of your time on this episode of sequel cast too. Uh, yes. Uh, I was going to say likewise, but that makes no sense. Um, okay. <laughs> Good night. Uh, sure. I was just trying to give you a great outro. <laughs> yep. I'll, I'll cut this. More wolf bang. More effective than wolf pain count. Indeed. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi, and with me is William Thrasher. Uh, the creatures in the mountain. Children of the night, what podcast they make. Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh, 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 uh. Yeah. We were talking about, I mean, 1931. Uh, this is, 
I think, a record, the oldest film we have covered for uh, Sequel Cast 2, and, and I think Sequel Cast in whatever flavor you've listened to it in the past. Yeah, I'm not, I, I'm not sure we... I think the oldest thing we looked at in the past was Planet of the Apes. Um... Yeah, because that is older than Chinatown. I believe you're. I believe you're right. We typically stay within the uh, '70s to '90s uh, wheelhouse, although the sequels take you sometimes more recently. Uh, but that, that, that's all a good point and very interesting. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we'll see how this does. This is a belated Halloween monster uh, start of a monster series looking at Dracula, the first three uh, Dracula pictures. But it's an exactly Universal. on time Thanksgiving series looking at the Dracula pictures. That's right, because Dracula would like to um, stuff his belly with blood, and on Thanksgiving, uh, people like to stuff their belly with turkey or their nearest non-animal uh, product equivalent. <laughs> so I, um, I am so happy to finally be doing a Universal Monsters series. This is something I've wanted oh, I know. to do we, since we began. Yeah, yeah, we've talked about this for years. I, I have my collection back in my possession, finally, after being buried in a warehouse that took 10 hours to figure out where it was in several trips uh, i don't know if you had stuff in storage but it's, it's a pain in the ass because it seems like you put away the thing you think you won't need you will need and uh it's like a, a game of tetris or something trying to get stuff out but dracula was a novel in uh, 1897 by bram stoker uh later became a successful play uh around the world uh by Hamilton Dean, although I think it started as like a, a UK play, perhaps, and and this movie is based on the stage play, um, and 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 you can tell, you know, there's not that many sets. It it makes some less characters than in the novel, of course. It's an adaptation. You want to change things, and it made uh, Bela Lugosi a star. He he played this on stage. He didn't know English very well at the time, and he memorized his lines uh, phonetically. So he didn't always know what he was saying initially. I mean, of course, he did later as he uh, became more skilled. And what it helps yeah, this his is... performance. Like he, mm-hmm. he, it, it makes him seem sort of other. It makes him seem otherworldly and out of time. And, and just the fact that his natural uh, Hungarian accent is always bleeding through. I I absolutely love what that does to his performance. I mean, but yeah, Lugosi yeah, but... is what makes this movie. I, I agree. I think without Lugosi, that movie would not be remembered uh, nearly as fondly, although some of the other acting is interesting. But before we talk about this film in particular, I have to ask, um, was this one where you read the novel beforehand? Because I certainly did. I read the novel when I was in eighth grade uh, and and really enjoyed it, especially how different chapters were from different characters and it's their diaries and letters. And uh, I, I think um, Van Helsing, it's like his... He's recording things on wax cylinders or something, right? You know, I, this is a novel that I still haven't read. Oh, wow. Um, I, I'd recommend it. It's short. It's an easier read than Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. <laughs> uh, and, and just for, for comparison's sake, if nothing else, um, I mean, you can even get it for free off of Project Gutenberg. Maybe I'll throw up a link in the show notes for that. Cool. But yeah, this this particular version of Dracula. So I've, I've loved monsters most of my life, and I, I have I had seen many different versions of Dracula. But the first time I ever saw this Dracula from beginning to end was in the uh, was in the the 
just after the the middle 90s uh, i i think i was 16 mm. or 17 when uh the sci-fi channel uh in an amazing amazingly holding back network decay uh for halloween showed all the universal monster movies and one of them was dracula and that was it was just so fun staying up all night watching dracula on the tv uh huh that's I, I'm I'm just surprised, and and I suppose I shouldn't be, but I mean nowadays, Sci-Fi Channel would never do something like that. Show a movie that old, no network I, I would it, do something like that. AMC used to do this a lot too. Am I remembering this correctly? That with the Halloween horror marathons, they still do, but it's more recent things like Exorcist or The Fly, um, or you know, whatever Paranormal Activity. Uh, but but they used to do really old like Universal and Hammer horror pictures. Oh yeah. Um, Linda Blair hosted some of those marathons, if uh, memory serves. Uh, when when they did it on Sci-Fi Channel, did they have like some goofy host or something, or was it just? No, I think it was. It was just a, a voiceover. And now, mm. horror begins with Dracula. And actually, now that I think about it, I think that night they showed all the movies that we're going to talk about for this series because I know um, they followed it up immediately with Dracula's Daughter. Yeah. Uh. Pretty cool. Um, yeah, the first time I saw this this Dracula film I had mentioned before, I had, I had read the book uh, when I was, oh, like 13, 14, thereabouts. Um, I, I think specifically I read the novel because I had read before that uh, Anne Rice's interview with the vampire and then oh. kind of wanted to see not where it all started because there is vampire in literature before Dracula, but I think Bram Stoker's Dracula is the most famous, the first example of like, Vampires really popping in pop culture, um, if you will. Uh, but but um, I had recently had a, a DVD player when I was, I think, a junior in high school. Mm-hmm. And uh, that became a hobby that still continues to collecting movies, you know, eats a lot of money. Uh, <laughs> as fun as it is, obviously. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't do the show. But yeah, Dracula uh, had a, a nice... Um, Universal did this fantastic release and they've redone it over the years but originally was these kind of gray fake marble looking covers of all the old monster movies it would be like the dracula collection the mummy collection and i and i got the dracula one where it was a flipper disc on one side the english version the other side the spanish version which is filmed on the same sets by a different director and cast at the same time which i still need to see i've only ever seen Mm -hmm. clips of that i've never had the opportunity to watch the whole thing yeah um the Spanish version of of Dracula uh, filmed in the Universal lot is really good, and I think it has better um, better camera angles, more clever camera work. Uh, in fact, on well, it's either on a commentary or a documentary on the DVD, they argue that the ideal version of Dracula would be the Spanish version with Bela Lugosi cut in there hmm. as as the titular vampire. Um, uh, before we dive into this film i'm also wondering like what's your favorite dracula because this dracula is one of the most filmed um stories of all time i think you'd be hard you know there's dracula there's frankenstein there's peter pan there's uh, the bible and that's kind of it well, well yes yeah of course yeah sure the bible has been filmed in, in many different versions but um you want to talk about some of the most sherlock holmes i think might be up there for most adapted uh, character from the page to the screen or the television. But do you have a favorite Dracula out there? Because there's so many. It 
it it is hard to say. Like I, part of me wants to just go by default say Christopher Lee, if only because he was the Dracula that I really really grew up with. Mm. But but I don't know. I mean, there there are too many Dracula actors to pick from, and they all <laughs> most of them all have strengths that are really really good. That's a great point. I mean, one I've been meaning to see, which I never have, is the Frank Langella version from the late seventies. It's supposed to be kind of a more romantic uh, Dracula. Oh, I've seen that. Sylvester McCoy is in that as like a young yes, newspaper how, reporter. How is it? John Williams did the music. It's sort of a different uh, lush score. I I remember enjoying it, but I th- I think it is a bit unintentionally campy. Uh, Dracula is mm-hmm. a character that you can do some wonderful camp things with, but you have to make sure the camp is deliberate. When it happens accidentally, you have a... a a not-too-good movie on your hands. Or at least a not-too-good performance. Yeah, I mean, speaking of camp, you know, on stage there's been quite a few attempts to um, do vampires as as musicals. And while this can do good in places like Germany and the U.S., it always gets laughed on stage. And I've watched, um, you know, bootleg performances of, like, Anne Rice's Lestat musical uh, on on Broadway and the audience is giggling the whole time, and I'm giggling along with them. There's something about when a vampire breaks into a show tune, I cannot keep a straight face. And I'm not sure why that is. Because I like vampires, I like musicals, I should like them together. Uh, but it's uh, it's just one of those things. In fact, there is a musical of Dracula um, done by the same team that did the Jekyll and Hyde musical. But I, it never made it to Broadway. It has... It comes off as campy. I've listened to the album. I haven't seen a, a film stage performance or a live stage performance, but like one of the first numbers is Dracula singing how he needs fresh blood, and the, the song is called Fresh Blood. Fresh blood for the tasting, fresh blood for me. Um, so. <laughs> when, I was, uh, so when I was in uh, high school, uh, the Virginia Stage Company put on a Dracula ballet that I saw oh, was really okay. enjoyable. Uh, I bet. Okay. It, it, well, was um, ki- it was kind of condensed. The whole thing. The whole thing was set uh, in Dracula's castle. They just kind of merged the Dracula's castle, Carfax Abbey locations mm-hmm. together. But it, it hit all the beats of the stories. But one thing that was really neat, and this ties into this movie, is that the stage uh, towards the end of the film, uh, there's this interior shot of Carfax Abbey where it's just this big empty chamber with a massive staircase spiraling upward and a massive vault door in the background. And mm. that is the look that they went for their set. And it really, really worked. Smart. Um, I think the only flourish they added is they had a cobweb-covered chandelier kind of hanging down over everything. So this film came out in 1931. Uh Directed by Todd Browning with uh, Carl Frohnd as the cinematographer. Um, and I looked up box office for 1931 uh, off of com. So I take this accuracy with a grain of salt, as always, with the box office figures. Um, but it, it appears with domestic gross, meaning uh, U.S., Canada, and Mexico, Dracula was the number nine film of the year with $4.2 million. Huh. And, and keeping in mind, this was back when a film could run for a year or more. Yeah, absolutely. There, there were, um, the country. and it was in a days when movie theaters were cheap and affordable to go to, as opposed to, um, live theater. Hence the term Nickelodeon, right? You go oh, for yeah. a nickel, uh, 
Put another nickel in in the Nickelodeon. <laughs> that that is uh, that's a real song. Uh, you can look it up and listen to it in uh, scratchy wax cylinder audio anytime you want. Now, now you're making me wanting to watch the film Nickelodeon starring Bart Reynolds. That's a kind of <laughs> I believe it's a musical or something set in the uh, about actors in the 1920s. We'll see. So, if yeah, this movie stars. Blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, it stars Bella Lugosi, David Manners, Helen Chandler, Dwight Fry, and Edward Van Sloan, edited by Milton Carruth and Morris Pivar. Um, and originally premiered in uh, New York, uh, February 12th, 1931. And this was the first of what you would call the Universal monster movies. This isn't to say Universal did not make horror films before this, but um, this one did really well. And it, you know, had them adapt other uh, classic pieces of literature that... I think for the most part, except for maybe H.G. Wells' Invisible Man, they didn't have to get the rights to, uh, based on copyright law at the time. Yeah, and, and uh, beyond that, so this this spawned multiple horror franchises, all of which eventually crossed over in both serious and comedic films. Uh, it this is gonna this is gonna sound very hack, but it's also true. It was the Marvel Cinematic Universe of its day. No, I I don't think that's hack. I think that's actually pretty astute. And in fact, um. Some other podcast I was listening to uh, noted this, and I bet you if you asked uh, Kevin Feige or, or some of the, the head-ups at, at Marvel Entertainment, they would agree with you. That's not to say these things had the best plot continuity or, or anything, but oh, yeah, yeah. That, that that these were one-off films that I think starting with Frankenstein uh, meets the Wolfman and House of, House of Frankenstein and all those kind of things, it was the, kind of the monster mash thing. And uh, what is it about vampires that makes them stick around for so long. You know, there's so many things like banshees or, or ghosts or whatever, but vampires uh, seem to really come back strong every few decades. You had the Twilight films, you had Anne Rice, uh, Lestat stuff, uh, and, and so forth. Why vampires? I, I think it comes down to two things, and that's one One is sex appeal. There was something undeniably mm-hmm. sexy about, about vampires. Uh, e- even, even like going back to the silent film, uh, 1922's Nosferatu, um, that's a monster that is motivated entirely by lust. He's a hideous beast, but you know it's it's all about him being horny. But the other thing is, out of all the classic monsters, vampires are the ones you can have the best conversation with. They can you can give them sparkling dialogue. They don't have to mm. talk. They don't have to talk like a beast. They can just they can just talk like a very erudite person. You know, the the mummy spends most of his time not talking at all. Frankenstein gets fairly monosyllabic. Once the wolfman transforms, he's not going to be speaking. He's just going to be howling. But with with a vampire, from beginning to end, you can always have a real sinister war of words. Yeah, I, I never thought that about the, the dialogue, but that's a good point. I think the only other creature that really talks a lot from the classic Universal roster is Invisible Man, but it's more because the Invisible Man is a delightful asshole, and I'm sure we'll talk, I'm sure we'll talk about those films. And also, uh, if he's not talking, you're never quite sure if he's in the scene. Yeah, um, in fact, uh, it, it reminds me of a direct-to-video sequel, Hollow Man 2. There's a scene where two Invisible Men are fighting each other in a lab, and it's just like things getting pushed off tables. <laughs> now, in concept, that's a pretty good idea. Do they pull it off? Not really. They don't have the, the the budget to quite do it appropriately. Um, and in fact, there's a new Invisible Man picture uh, coming where it's almost like a metaphor for a, a bad boyfriend or something hmm. um, that, that looks quite interesting. 
But yeah, back to Dracula, uh, this film, part of what it does to compress the characters and the sets, because uh, this was based on a stage play, is uh, in the book in the beginning, the character that goes to Dracula's castle is Jonathan Harker. But here it is Renfield. And I think that that's a change that makes a lot of sense because Renfield is just this random crazy dude uh, who becomes Dracula's, um, I don't know if familiar is the right term, but it's kind of like buddy. Thrall is the, uh, is the, the yes. standard industry term. Okay. There you go. His, his thrall. But here that you make Renfield, the guy in the beginning who first meets Dracula, I, I think is a really smart change. Cause you get to see the character, you know, completely, uh, change in his mannerisms and gives him a bit of an arc and, and more to do. And and frankly, and I, I thought this about the book. I don't think this movie ever gets better than the beginning at Count Dracula's castle. Well, the, there there are a lot of things going for the movie at the beginning. One thing that one thing that I love, and this is totally, it, it's something it's something you have to think about is that this movie was made on the cheap. Mm-hmm. And and I find the, the, the limited number of sets certainly helps with that. But there is virtually no music in this movie and all the music that it does have is repurposed so the movie begins with the somber tune from swan lake and universal used that same tune in the opening credits of a lot of their early horror pictures including the mummy that was kind of a stamp that you knew this was you knew this was a universal horror if it started with swan like but one one thing I love is we get some great we get some great shots uh, of like you know the this desolate uh, old European countryside you know and uh, Renfield you know he's he meets some he meets the the superstitious villagers and one thing that I I absolutely love so many modern horror movies play it coy even when it's a monster that we've been watching on film for a hundred years and know all the shtick to and something that I absolutely love about this movie is the superstitious villagers lay it all out on the line you are Mm -hmm. told in the very first scene Dracula's a vampire he can shapeshift he drinks blood they explain everything about Dracula nothing comes as a surprise it is overplaying the exposition a bit, but I guess like in the context, like it feels natural. I don't think it feels forced because he's the, he, he's a stranger in a strange land. Uh, Renfield is kind of the audience surrogate in the beginning of this film. You're just like him. You don't know what he's getting into. But you know he they, he take you know he he takes the cross they offer him, but does ride on to Dracula's castle. There's there's also there's this lovely scene where the where. Uh, the village coach takes him to the crossroads, uh, which is great imagery, where he's going to meet the uh, coach from Castle Dracula. And two things I like about it is, one, the driver of Dracula's coach is Dracula in disguise, which is yeah. a, a fun fun bit of imagery. Uh, but the other thing I love about it is that uh, when, when the village coach stops, the driver just throws his luggage out of the side and peels out of there. It is almost comical how terrified he is and how little time the coachman wants to stay on the mountaintop. Oh, I, I love the the shot where Renfield gets into the uh, the second carriage to to complete the journey to Dracula's castle. He takes a, a peep at the driver, and there's no driver there, just a bat flying above the horses. Yeah, and and it is a, the bat effects in this movie. 
They are cheesy, and in fact, they could be coming right out of a stage play. But I do, I do find something charming about that. There, I I have as as I've you know developed my tastes as as a film viewer, I really do have a fondness for special effects that that ask the audience to use their imagination. You have to consider when this was made. I think going into it, but yeah, I, I find that the bat effect makes me laugh every time and i am not laughing at the movie i'm laughing with it it's a, a pet peeve of mine is when people watch an old movie and they giggle all the way through and say what a piece of shit it is because we i, th- I think you you love it in spite of its or maybe because of its eccentricities <laughs> and that you have to you have to buy into the magic that they're that they're selling buy into the world um when when he gets to the castle just the the epic look of of everything in the castle it is offset by some things like uh, armadillos. And yeah, there are possums and armadillos possums, yes. on these sets. And and I've often wondered about that because I've heard I've heard rumors that there was a miscommunication in the script, mm. which is why those are the animals that are present. Uh, I've also heard that that was just a Todd Browning flourish to put these, to put two new world animals in a very old world setting to create this kind of schism. Although I will, I will mm. say this, like the possums, it takes you a moment to realize they're possums. They do, when they do look like giant monstrous rats when you first see them, but the armadillos, it occurs to me, how many people at the time do you think were familiar with armadillos? Because I could see a lot of people seeing that, and that's the first time they've ever seen an armadillo. Like, holy shit, there's a hell beast in this movie. I, I mean, if you were from, um, you know, the, the Texas area, I assume you would have seen armadillos before. But otherwise, it's a pretty uh, weird, fantastical-looking creature. Um, and I wonder what would the animals are supposed to have been like bats and wolves or something or I feel like rats it, or I feel like it would have to have been rats maybe yeah, cats yeah. I could maybe see snakes wolves. or something you could do snakes I think and and have that work uh but yeah but I think it, it, it helps there's also that there's mm-hmm. also that quick insert shot when we first see Dracula and his brides rise from their coffin where there's that tiny coffin with the bee in it right I mean, that's uh, old and school glad... resurrection imagery right there yeah, well, and then the um, the cinematography by Carl Freund is, is really quite good, but it's especially good in the scene where Dracula awakens from his coffin because it's this, like, handheld camera thing. You didn't see a lot of back then of the camera as it almost, like, goes into the coffin as it opens and then it backs up as he rises. Uh, when Dracula is filming in close-up, they always have light shining right on his eyes, just illuminating that part of him to make him look more otherworldly. It, it's an effect I love, and it's, effect, it's an effect you almost never see. I think they reproduced that a bit in the 90s with Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula, and it was used with Morticia in the 90s Adams Family movies, but it's mm-hmm. it's a great effect that I, I wish was used more. It's a good effect. It's it's simple. I mean, it looks like it'd be annoying for the actors because you have Quite bright possibly, lights in yeah. your eyes, but if you have any theater experience, you're used to being blinded constantly with the, with the good old stage lights. But it's just it's just it's great seeing seeing Dracula as he first interacts with Renfield. I mean, Lugosi commands the screen. You can you can the, strangely enough, the magnetism that made him really inhabit the part when it was a play really does carry over to film. 
It does, and I, I like that you, you never find out what the, the three women in Dracula's chambers, what their names are, what they're doing, but they're still, it's just very creepy with their movements. I mean, in, in the book, and it, it's um, portrayed as this, I believe in Bram Stoker's Dracula, I haven't seen that in quite some time, but it's basically like they're they're um, having sort of like an orgy with them, or all giving him a blowjob or something, like... It's pretty risque stuff. Here, the the women just kind of approach him, and and it's more implied. Uh, yeah, after after Renfield uh, arranges Dracula's papers for purchasing Carfax Abbey, there's this scene where he he opens a window and he passes out. He sees a bat, and it's unclear does he does Renfield pass out from fear or has the bat mesmerized him? But once he does that, yeah, Dracula's brides come out. There is something very ethereal and otherworldly on him. They're clearly going to devour Renfield, but Dracula sends them away because he needs Renfield alive. Uh, it's worth noting the whole reason Renfield goes to Dracula's castle is to help uh, finish a land deal, because Dracula wants to purchase Carfax Abbey in London. Yeah, and and, uh, and Renfield is is the solicitor, uh, is the agent. Uh, there, oh, there there is some there is some neat stuff in here because you know Dracula's showing off the the castle. Uh, he he feeds Renfield a meal, uh, and there's that great moment where Renfield accidentally pricks his finger on a the sharp end of a paperclip, mm. and yep. and just like the the way Dracula sort of puffs up and starts leaning in, and you even get a shot of Renfield's bloody finger, which I feel like. This movie was made pre-code. I feel like that's something you would not see after the the, the code had passed. You're you're probably right. Um, it also makes me think that you can talk about vamp- vampire as a metaphor, but Dracula feeds on men and women. Do you think um, homosexuality is is something that is has always been kind of baked into vampires? Because certainly Anne Rice plays that up a lot in her books. Well, I mean, there, it's. There, there have been, especially in recent years, there have been a lot of gay, bi, uh, and queer mm-hmm. characters that are represented in vampire fiction. I think there is, oh crud, I'm, I'm, I will probably be talking about this book more in future movies, but there is a great book about the history uh, and different versions of the vampire legends, and it does, mm. and it does somewhat address this, because, like... Uh, a lot of old vampire legends, like, and even going back to Vlad the Impaler uh, and, and that connection to the Dracula mythology, um, there is a lot of Eastern European versions of the vampire legends where the vampires very much are aristocratic, and as a result, they're often depicted as being very high fashion and, and dressing like fops, uh, which is, you know, a, a fop was a very, was a person who sort of embraced a very sort of feminine version of masculinity. And I think that, I think that carries over. Now, in the case of Dracula, I think Dracula doesn't care where the blood comes from. I think he's right. so old and jaded uh it you know it doesn't really matter it doesn't really matter to him although keep in mind that this this version of dracula he he's interested in mina you know he clearly has has eyes for her um and he seems to despise renfield <laughs> cuz how does he manipulate renfield he keeps promising renfield that he'll make him immortal yeah. but he has no intention of doing that clearly he's just stringing renfield along he's just kicking the can and i i do want to you know bella Lugosi gets all the plaudits for this film and, and he's excellent but quite Fry as Renfield, I think, is the other really strong performance. And that in, in the beginning, he, he just has this, like, 
kind of goody two shoes kind of thing, and, and seeing him fall into madness is uh, is a bit tragic in a way. Well, yeah, he he starts out very oh gee whiz, Mister Dracula. I guess we better sign these papers. Oh, don't yeah. mind me. And then you know by the end, I've already done it. They're already dead. Why would you kill a fly? No, master, no, master, I didn't do that. I mean, his, his performance is delightfully parodied in Mel Brooks's Dracula Dead and Loving It, which I don't think gets the attention <laughs> it deserves. It's no Yen Frankenstein, but how could how can it be? Um, but you talk about that, and this is something this is something about the acting style in this movie, which at first I didn't like, but it really grew on me. Every single actor in this movie acts like they're in a completely different thing. Hmm. Yeah, like they, yeah. they they just none of the acting styles mesh. Everybody is doing their own thing, and the other performances be damned. I think that that makes it more interesting. I mean, the more naturalistic performances come from Mina and Lucy, and and we should get into that part of the story. There's this bit kind of interlude that I really think you could make into a film by itself, where uh, Dracula is aboard the Vesta along with Renfield. And um, he kills, like, everyone aboard. And you get this great shot of just the shadow of the uh, the captain impaled on the mast. Oh, yeah, he, he's lashed uh, to the pilot's wheel. And, yeah, yeah that, sorry, not the that mast, shot the of the yeah. shadow, mm-hmm. it just it, it suggests that this guy suffered a horrible, horrible death. And I can't imagine the time it took to get that just right with the lighting to make it so still. And, oh, it's just oh, it's, yeah. it's wonderful. And, and, and your imagination makes you envision just yeah. the, the captain being in the worst state. Oh, but yeah, and Dracula's... Uh, and and this is something that you would think uh, would would come back, because when Dracula and Renfield are talking, he's like, oh, well, I will make arrangements for your luggage. I will only be taking three boxes. And you would think, oh, yeah, three boxes, three coffins, one for each of his brides. Nope, they're all for him. And isn't there some importance about the the soil being from uh, the soil of his castle, or is that in yeah? The book? It well, it connects it connects to some of the older vampire legends. Mm. But as, as Van Helsing says, that the vampire during the day the vampire must sleep, and he must sleep in the soil of his homeland, which right. goes back to an old vampire legend that the vampire has to sleep in the same soil it was buried in. Uh, and so, yeah, so that's, yeah, it's, it's just three boxes of soil. So you got your box for sleeping, you got two boxes for backup. Which, I mean, you, if you have a plan, you always want a backup, because things can go sideways, and uh, you need something oh, to fall back on. Absolutely. But yeah, so uh, Dracula is now in London. Renfield is committed to a uh, to a mental institution run by Doctor Seward. Uh, we get some nice shots of Dracula roaming the streets of London at night and preying on different women. Uh, and it's and that's a no. That's another thing that modern audiences probably will, will come as a surprise. Uh, they flashed when the boat uh, uh, drifts into London's harbor. We cut to a newspaper clipping about about the discovery of the boat and they linger on that newspaper clipping. They give you time to read the entire article because that's exactly what they expect you to do. And the, the newspaper clipping is a, is a trope you don't really see too much, but it was in movies all the time, uh, even leading up to the original Godfather as, as a lot of those newspaper uh, clippings. And, and I love uh, it. it this just struck me, but when Dracula is going through feeding on people, I wonder if it's almost, um, Kind of a, a shout out to Jack the Ripper. 
I could see it. There, there was a, there was something of a vibe like that. I mean, especially like him in his cloak and his, his, uh, his high top hat. It mm. is reminiscent of a lot of depictions of Jack the Ripper in media. So we get to a sequence at a London theater, and I, this kind of focuses on um, how high class, how rich everyone is. You know, Dracula included, and we get to meet. Some of the other characters, we met Dr. Seward's daughter is uh, Mina, played by Helen Chandler. Her friend is Lucy, played by Francis Dade. And her fiancé is John Harker, played by David Manners. And I, I think they're all, frankly, pretty planned. Well, they are, despite the fact that they're supposed to be Londoners, they're, they're just general all-American kids. Yes. And you can also notice that that in the book it's Jonathan Harker, and here it's John Harker, right? That's Americanizing the name. <laughs> yep. Um, so that night, it, it's uh, you know one of the classic scenes from the film. Uh, Lucy is is sleeping, and Dracula comes in and feeds on her while she's asleep, and just just the dread of the vampire going through the window and creeping up and going down for a late night snack. It's uh, it, you, you talk about you know like kind of sexual energy. I mean, this is kind of the the height of that. Well, the, and and it's almost and and it's and, and Lucy Lucy is a character that I love who never really who very rarely gets her due in Dracula adaptations because she's between between her and Mina like she's the fun one, she's the adventurous one, she's the one that takes risks. Like even then, like she she leaves her window open on her second story apartment and it seems to imply that she sees Dracula down in the streets looking at her like she's just like she's just teasing him and then in mm. a, in a, in a and she because she's clearly is a little bit smitten with Dracula when they meet in the theater and then she you know she gets what she wants but in the worst possible way because it then becomes it becomes a running thing throughout the movie that uh that Lucy has some sort of she's she's losing blood and they don't know how and they give her transfusions but the transfusions never take and she eventually dies of this mysterious blood loss and something else in this movie that I love we never see vampire fangs we just see vampires sort of move in for the kill so to speak right. uh, and then later we'll have mentions that there were two tiny punctures on the neck but we never see those punctures we just see people reacting to them and I think that helps sell it. That That is... I, I can't imagine what those punctures would have looked like given the special effects technology of the time. So the fact that we see people reacting to the punctures helps sell it. I like the way they exist in our imagination. Well, and I don't know if you've ever tried to speak even with plastic fangs in your mouth, but it's quite difficult to. And, and uh, it's a problem in a lot of early episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. If they get an actor that hasn't been practicing with his fangs... He he'll sound a bit like a mushmouth or or something or, or maybe like a bad Sean Connery impression, like it changes. You have to just like if you're, you know, in prosthetics, you have to talk in a different, move your face in a different <laughs> way, to make the feints visible, to uh, enunciate your words in a in a different manner, to accentuate the uh, the pointy teeth in your mouth. <laughs> that that's that's true. So there's there's no there's no fang talking in this movie. <laughs> Due to the absence of fangs. I mean, what would Bela Lugosi sound like with fangs in his mouth? I can only, I don't think it'd be less intimidating. I only drink blood. Well, I don't know what the hell that was. Ch chances are he wouldn't speak once the fangs come out. Mm -hmm. But but it is neat, and like we get there's this wonderful, really 
creepy shot of, of Lucy on a hospital bed in this operating theater with the doctors, with Seward and the other doctors fussing over her. And there's all these uh, presumably medical students uh, in, in the gallery watching. And the way they move ever so slightly, like you can't tell who's an extra in the background and what's just like a stuffed suit to make it look like the theater's packed. But it really, like, they're just leaning forward like vultures. It's a really ghoulish scene. I absolutely love it. We see Renfield at the sanitarium, you know, eating eating insects and kind of calling about his master. I, I think it, I think it might be later in the film or something, but they're asking, Van Helsing is asking Renfield what he knows about Dracula. And Renfield is like, Count Dracula? I've never heard of him. Like, it's this wonderful fake <laughs> attempt at lying and he yeah, tries he's doing to a improve. very bad job serving Dracula, but yeah. that's a, that's one thing about Renfield. You know, he, he his performance is, is great. It's over the top. Renfield is constantly escaping from his cell in the sanitarium, and everyone is just so blasé about it. Okay, put him back. All right, bog eater, we best put you to bed. Yeah, it's um, and then we get Van Helsing who. Is a is a big character in uh, Dracula lore, played by Edward Van Sloan, and it's interesting in, in this version, and it's the same as the book. But I mean, he's an old man, and, and uh, there's been a, a trend in a lot of films to make a young Van Helsing that's kind of more sexy or witty. But this is this is a, uh, you know, he is he's a professor in every sense of the word. He's a study uh, student of the occult, and he knows what he's talking about, and. Kind of like I don't know Inspector Gadget or something. He has all kinds of uh, accoutrement that he can use to uh, scare things well, away, whether it's Wolf's Bane or a cross or, or whatnot. Well, it's, it's fascinating because he's a character that has a keen scientific mind, but also has an unshakable belief in the supernatural. And they, they don't spell it out, but he's brought in. He's an expert in diseases of the blood, and so he's brought in to consult on Lucy's case. And there's even that neat scene where we see him testing blood and makes the fluid go clear. Um, but but you know he's clearly from the old world and knows all the old world stories on vampirism. So like the moment he's like, okay, blood loss, puncture marks. Okay, we got an Nosferatu on our hands, and I love that they use the phrase Nosferatu. Like, it's great. We get multiple words for vampires, all of which are valid. Definitely, um, Edward Van Sloan. I think is. I'm not crazy about his performance either, but he, at least, does seem like a man who knows what he's talking about, and he's able to deliver the exposition and not be not be too dry about it. Well, it's also just great when when he and Dracula eventually start facing off. It's, mm, it's mm-hmm. neat seeing he he his acting shines when he's playing off of Lugosi. Yeah, I agree. When it's just him delivering exposition. It is it is a bit flat. So now that Dracula's had a taste of Lucy, he wants to go after Mina, and um, he bites her. And and you have this wonderful thing of Mina like wearing a scarf and trying not to have people look at her neck and and be a bit demure about it. Um, well, she gets a great transformation because yeah. when, when we were first introduced to her, she's very shy. She's kind of a shrinking violet. She doesn't like creepy things or the night. But as Dracula starts feeding on her, she gets more brassy. Uh, she gets more talkative. She gets like more energetic. But then she also like like she starts to like the night. There's even the part. Oh no no no! I love nights and fogs and moonlight and like it's it's great how how strangely enough <laughs> Dracula brings out the best in her. 
we do see in a scene where Dracula visits uh, Van Helsing and, and there's a mirror and you don't see Dracula's reflection. And Dracula oh, smashes the mirror and just like storms off. He's like, my mortal enemy, mirrors. But at this point, though, Dracula, at this point, because um, when, because it's the mirror that's in like a cigar case lid or cigar box lid uh, or a little humidor and what I like is when he notices that Dracula has no reflection in the mirror, he, throughout the conversation, is showing people that Dracula has no reflection. So by that point, multiple characters have now undeniably seen something supernatural and seen how Dracula reacts to it when uh, when Van Helsing tries to make Dracula look at his own reflection. Uh, and that's what finally gets things moving to the climax. So, uh, oh, and one thing that we ought to... That, it's which is a thread that the movie drops is that Lucy rises from her grave as a vampire and starts preying on children. Uh, but but aside from seeing aside from seeing Lucy once wander through a cemetery and having the Cockney orderly from the asylum reading the newspaper account of it out loud and a really neat creepy scene where Mina talks about how at first she thinks it's a dream but like Lucy keeps visiting her at night. Like, the movie kind of forgets that Lucy exists after that. You're right. It, and so when the final showdown comes, it's just a sh- it's just Dracula has taken uh, Mina to Carfax Abbey, so uh, Harker and Van Helsing uh, gird their loins, and they uh, break into Carfax Abbey as well. Well, that helps really make, make the, you know, end of the film and the showdown. It gives it a bit of energy, a bit of oomph. The movie is less directionless. You know they're all they're going to to literally storm the castle, as it were. But it's it's strange because it is almost very like matter of fact because the whole the, there's no there's no showdown with Dracula there's no you know tr- keeping him somewhere until sunlight comes down. I mean they literally do just wait for sunrise and Dracula Dra- Dracula who knows people are following him into his castle because he tried to lock them out of the crypt. He's just in his coffin. And uh, so Van Helsing breaks up the coffin lid, uh, gets this piece of iron that uh, that Harker finds, and just stakes Dracula off camera. Although, we get a nice agonizing death rattle from Dracula, so it being off camera is not so bad. We do. Before that, we get a good scene where Renfield and Dracula are in um, the Abbey, and Renfield is like, oh, master, they didn't follow me. They didn't do this. They didn't do this. And, and Count Dracula just picks up Renfield by the scruff of his neck. No, he, he gra- Yeah, he grabs him by the throat, breaks his, it implies breaks Renfield's neck and throws him down the stairs. And it's just great physicality because this is the huge staircase with no railing that, that I talked about earlier that was reused in the Dracula ballet I saw. And just, just the Renfield tumbling down that mm. long curving staircase and then falling off behind some rubble, which clearly that's where they had some padding to break his fall, but it's... It's one of those things, because we don't see that impact, what we imagine is so much greater than what the film is delivering. Yeah, just a a great, great moment. Um, But with Dracula dead, uh, the spell on Mina is broken. She and and Harker are back together. And they're like, come on, Van Helsing, we've got to get out of here. And Van Helsing's like, no, not just yet. And then it just kind of, the movie just sort of ends. (laughs) It feels like there's a deleted scene, but I will say uh, Dracula's daughter does pick up right where this film leaves off. 
So you get the closure at the start of the next film. You mention a deleted scene. There actually is one. Oh, what is it? Yeah, let me. Uh, so this uh, this came up in uh, doing doing some of my uh, my research. So, um, you know how Frankenstein began uh, with a prologue. Yes, with Edward Van Sloan. So this the original cut of this movie doesn't cut to the this has been a universal picture uh it cuts to another set of stage curtains and edward van sloan comes out and does a little epilogue uh which i'll go ahead i'll go ahead and read that just a moment ladies and gentlemen a word before you go we hope the memories of dracula and renfield won't give you bad dreams so just a word of reassurance when you go home tonight and the lights have been turned out and you were afraid to look behind the curtains, and you dread to see a face appear at the window. Why, just pull yourself together, and remember that after all, there are such things as vampires. Um, this was removed from later releases of the film for for basically taking too long, and there was a the, the, they felt it promoted the occult and the supernatural by stating that vampires are real. Hmm. Uh, I think I would have liked that epilogue. It would have at least. Well, it's a nice spooky bit of business. Yeah, kind of, kind of creepy kind of thing. Um, I mean, I'm looking at some of these classic Dracula posters. One of them says, "A Nightmare of Horror: uh, The Story of the Strangest Passion of the World Has Ever Known." That's just creepy eyes looking at um, one of the characters on a bed. It's it's just uh, th- this movie is is a classic. It is not completely like uh, like the book. It's based on a stage play. It's its own thing. And um, well, also when when you see Dracula referenced in media and pop culture, this is the version of Dracula you see. Uh, if you mm-hmm. ever see a different version of Dracula, that's a very deliberate diver- That's a very deliberate divergence. Right, and uh, people think Bela Lugosi was at Dracula in a lot of films, but that's not true. He was Dracula in just uh, one other movie, Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. Though he did play a vampire again in Brown- Todd Browning's remake of London After Midnight, which I think was called Mark, yeah, called Mark of the Vampire in uh, 35. Right. So uh, a few years after this one, it it's but, just real. I mean, it just says something to uh, the power of Bela Lugosi's performance that it's still parodied to this day. I mean, there's a scene before Lucy dies where, where Lucy and Mina are talking and they're making they're trying to imitate how Bela Lugosi talks as Dracula. The other thing, and this, and I don't. This is something that I find, I find bittersweet. Is like as far as Bela Lugosi's roles go, they don't get better than this. This is his first movie ever and he never gets a role this good again he he has never used this well again it's 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 something both beautiful and tragic when you start at the very top and there's really nowhere to go but down because i'm just sort of curious to see how old um bella lugosi was if this was 1931 he was born in his early 30s well he was born in 82 wow so he was almost 50. He was like 40, late 40s. Oh, never mind then. <laughs> so that's quite something. I mean, kind of later in life, uh, being famous for one film, and then it, 
it really did typecast him, and later he did movies of, of uh, with Ed Wood and all these things. So very, very interesting. Um, on the uh, DVD from 1998, um, they uh, the DVD producers commissioned Philip Glass to do a score uh, performed by the Kronos Quartet. Oh yeah, which is an interesting. Uh, pretty neat. Um, not as like super avant-garde as you would think, uh, considering it's Philip Glass, but he, he's done a few film scores here and there, and it's a fun, uh, fun exercise because, as you mentioned, there's just no music in it, and it makes the film kind of lay there and feel kind of dead. Uh, pardon the pun, sometimes. Well, you know, it's funny because like when uh, there was a Nosferatu release uh, that had a score by Philip Glass as well, and I I have heard that one. I really enjoyed that one. I would I would like to hear his score for for Dracula. Yeah. Um, also of note, uh, when this came out in 1931, not all the movie theaters were set to do uh, sound, so there were versions of this movie out there that were silent films that just had intertitles with dialogue and so forth. Interesting. That's, a, that's another version I'd love to seek out. You know, it's it's strange. I'm, I'm Of course I'm giving this an enthusiastic sequel, yes, but unlike a lot of movies, I'm giving this a sequel, yes, because it really did leave me wanting more. I want to see more Lugosi as Dracula. I want to see what happens to these characters after this. You know, there there are... There are just some, some intriguing hanging threads, and I want to see how they would play out in another movie. I would give this a sequel, yes. I think, uh, as you mentioned, it is a, a stone-cold classic. That is actually a, a good movie, an entertaining movie. Um, for my money, it doesn't get better than it does at the beginning at Count Dracula's Castle, but um, between Dracula and uh, Renfield, I, I love those characters. I love them as portrayed in this movie. And um, despite the abrupt ending, um, it's it's worth your time. You should certainly watch it and definitely go and read the uh, original book by Bram Stoker. And uh, as you mentioned, Thrasher, people should also seek out Nosferatu, which was a un... Um, kind of like a bootleg version of Dracula where they change some of the names. Yeah, it's it's flat out. It is flat out the story of, from the Dracula's novel, except they make the vampire hideous. <laughs> and they call him Count Orlock, I think? Uh, yeah, Count Orlock to uh, to obscure, like, no, this isn't Count Dracula, it's Count Orlock. Completely different Count. In fact, Bram Stoker or, or his estate tried to get the film uh, destroyed. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad they failed to do that. Yeah. Uh, also, speaking of this kind of stuff, uh, Shadow of the Vampire is a very good movie with um, Willem Dafoe, a fictional telling of the making of Nosferatu in which the actor that played Count Orlock was, in fact, himself a vampire. Oh, yes. Max Shrek. Who was the name of Christopher Walken's character in Batman Returns. <laughs> and that's our tie in for Batman uh, on Batman Podcast Network for the week. We've done our duty. Yes. Uh, so I, I don't think I. So yeah, sequel yes for this certainly. And let's um, let's do pitch a sequel. I, I had something in mind. Uh, I think what you know the way this movie ends, it's kind of lame, and you don't really know what's going to happen next. But instead, I would do uh, something I, I I noticed a lot uh, looking on Disney Plus. Um, it's not quite a sequel. It's more of an interquel, a movie that takes place in the middle of a movie you've already seen. <laughs> and and this would be just more like a, um, almost like a slasher movie, but set on that boat when Count Dracula and Renfield 
or on uh, the Vesta. It would be about Dracula and Renfield helping him pick off people, the crew, one by one, while still trying to navigate the choppy waters and, and, and reach London. Hmm. And it would be called Dracula's Boat. Dracula's Boat. So that's my picture sequel. What about yours? So I, I really want to explore what happened to Lucy, because Lucy... I said Lucy's a vampire now, but that's that's it. So I guess presumably since she's fully transformed, Dracula being slain doesn't like make her mortal again. So my sequel is going to presume Lucy's still out there. Lucy's a vampire, and now and you know she's completely unbound. And the premise is Lucy misses Mina, so uh, it's going to take place on the run up to Mina's marriage to Jonathan Harker, and Lucy keeps appearing from to 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 Mina and the whole premise is you know, her she doesn't want to be alone and undeath she wants her best friend Mina to become a vampire too it's like you almost transform for Dracula transform for me you have no idea what you're missing uh, and so it's it's going to be a tension ten, it's going to be explore Mina's tension between wanting to be with her fiance but also wanting to be with her best friend I would definitely uh play up some lesbian undertones that would uh, definitely ruffle the, f- the feathers of the Hayes Code uh, of the time. I would try to take things as far as I possibly could. Um, but in the end, I do want this to be to be Mina's movie. Um, in the end, Mina helps Lucy's soul find rest. Mina... Mina is essentially is, is able to keep Lucy distracted long enough that the sunrise happens and... Uh, Lucy, Lucy turns to ash, uh, and, and that's going to be that's going to be the moment of, of redemption. That's also going to be Mina completely, completely rejecting vampirism. Hmm. And uh, what would the title be? Uh, I think I can't. I don't want to call it Dracula Two. I think I think I, for lack of a better term, I think I just want to call it Mina and Lucy. Okay. Very good. A new dimension in horror. And I think you have a question. Yes, that question is what shoe watching? Well, my shoe doesn't have eyeballs. It's uh, not watching a whole lot. But as for me, I have been watching quite a bit lately thanks to um, Disney+. Plus. I get a year-long subscription for free for having a Verizon unlimited uh, minute cell phone plan, uh, which is a nice perk. And... um, I think it is, uh, I'm really impressed with this selection. It has certainly been buggy. I think you've been using it too, Thrasher. Um, uh, yes, I've got some comments on that service. Yeah. Um, but I was watching a, uh, they have some original content and I really like this one. Uh, in fact, I think I'm going to try to apply for it. A reality show called Encore. Uh, have you, have you seen this one? No, no, so I haven't. It, it's um, produced and kind of nominally hosted by Kristen Bell, uh, who's one of the leads in Frozen, and she's on The Good Place and all that stuff. And um, what it is is they find people that did a high school production of a play, of a musical, and then they take them uh, from their lives today and have them redo that musical. Huh. And you learn about their lives, how things you know might or might not have gone the way they wanted it to. And uh, the, the first episode, they do it with Annie. And to see a, a woman, it uh, looks like in her late 30s, early 40s, playing Annie with the wig and the dress 
is a bit surreal, but I think also you get um, performances that are improved by just the, the life experience these people have had. And uh, it, um, yeah, it certainly made me nostalgic for the, the drama drama club uh, days, the high school, uh, putting on stage shows and everything. That's, that's intriguing. Yeah. Um, like original content on Disney+, Plus, and I don't think this is the best approach to it, they're just releasing episodes one week at a time, which I think is uh, old-fashioned and, and not the best way to to do it. I, I've heard it, it makes uh, younger people more upset and more of a turnoff to not watch the show if they can't binge it all at once, which I can I can relate to that. Um, on the other hand, from the point of view of the studio, if, if let's say all the Mandalorian comes out, the new Star Wars show, someone could do a trial of the service, watch the whole thing, and then cancel it. But, I mean, that's their prerogative. Really. That, that's a pretty believable explanation for why some things uh-huh. are coming out one episode at a time. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I could see that. Um, what about Thrasher? You've been watching some stuff too, right? So, well, my wife uh, did uh, signed up for Disney Plus, so we've both been watching some things on that. And I've, mm-hmm. I've had fun. I've had fun, you know, going back to watch old cartoons. That's strangely enough that, like, I'm not that into the new stuff. I want to see old cartoons. Yeah. I have noticed some problems on that service. Like, for instance, their their search feature you know what you get if you search for donald duck the million dollar duck i don't know you don't get donald duck cartoons mighty you ducks get, you get lots of unrelated documentaries and mm. live action movies and things with maybe one or two donald duck cartoons way down the listing like i feel like like I want to watch those those classic cartoons. You need to make that way more searchable. I have no idea how they how you get your search results because invariably I never find the thing I'm looking for. Uh, if I at least at least if I search for like a character, um, I found the best option. If you want to see classic cartoons, they have this through the decades collection. Yeah, where yeah. they have like different cartoons and movies kind of broken down literally by decade, starting from like the 30s to today. That's been pretty useful. I watched a whole bunch of Goofy shorts last night. I found that way. Um, but strangely enough, I've enjoyed watching cheesy old, outdated Marvel cartoons like Spider Man and His Amazing Friends. Right, they they have a lot of this. Speaking of Spider-Man, uh, the uh, the '90s series, which I've heard called Spider-Man: The Animated Series, I don't quite remember what the official title of it is. Um, all the episodes were in the wrong order, and they were all lumped under one season instead of four. Since launch, they've fixed the order of the episodes. However, they're still all jammed into one season. Which that's is... not the only show that's happened to. A number of shows are on there out of order. The new Ducktales is out of order. Oh, okay. Wow. Um, and, you know, um, there's controversy with uh, how it handles old Simpsons episodes, although they said that'll be fixed in early 2020. But why they made the default widescreen on old Simpsons episodes, which make the image look stretched out and, and blurry and, and choppy, but also ruins some of the jokes, as people have pointed out <laughs> on Twitter, uh, is is absolutely maddening. And and although they have an extras tab when you're watching stuff, they don't have the audio commentaries on there like they did on the very brief Simpsons World service. Hmm. 
That's why I'm glad I got my DVDs. Those exactly. audio commentaries are priceless. And that With guest stars. And the Michael Jackson episode is not on Disney Plus. Yeah, well, I mean that that got pulled from syndication uh, earlier this year as well. And it got pulled from uh, whatever other service it was on FX or whatever uh, streaming. Yeah, and that's their prerogative. But I think I think they should still have it on there. And, and I think like stuff like Song with the South should still be on there, but have some like disclaimer you can't uh, skip or something. Like I, I do like you look under the description of some of these things, and it does have disclaimers like. This has some cultural insensitivities because of when it was made. I think that's completely fair. It also points out if something has tobacco in it. However, if people are drinking, it doesn't seem to care about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I guess I guess fewer people are up in arms about about drinking. But yeah, I've noticed that with a lot a lot of the old cartoons, a little little thing comes up in the corner contains al- contains tobacco depiction, um, which strangely enough, they don't catch them all. Well, I bet not. I mean, that has to be, you have to pay like an intern or maybe like not pay an intern or have like some lower level toady watch through all this stuff, probably in fast forward and be like, if you think you see a cigarette, do a checkbox and we'll update it in our algorithm. Well, like there was this, there's this goofy short where Goofy teaches you how to swim, where in the background of one of the scenes is this billboard advertising cigars. Sure. You know, well, mind I, you, it's a blink and you miss it sort of thing. So you know, it could just it could just be a mistake. Although then again, maybe it's like, well, it only counts as a tobacco depiction if the character interacts with the tobacco product. Um, I haven't checked to see if Fantasia has some of the centaurs cropped out like it tends to have in most of the recent releases. But I suspect it would. You know what I mean? Yeah, I get, that's that's another thing I plan to revisit. That's that's a long term project I want to do. Is I do want to go back and watch all the old animated movies again. And that they're all on there is, um, with the exception of Son of the South, and um, which I don't think that counts as one of the classic. I mean, it's not completely animated all the way through, you know. But no, there's actually there's probably only about fifteen minutes of animation in there. Now that it fit, now that I think about it. Uh, you 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 know with the fact Fox what did I say facts the Fox acquisition you have some things like <laughs> Avatar uh, Simpsons um, Star Wars right but there's not a whole lot of Fox content on there I read somewhere and I it sounds right to me uh, Disney Plus has a hard cap of PG thirteen as far as the rating uh, it does make me hopeful I wonder if Hulu is going to have you know Planet of the Apes or some of the, more of that kind of stuff on there because now Disney has full acquisition of Hulu as well. Um, I will say, I don't think Fox um, and Disney should have been allowed to merge. I think that's a dangerous situation. Yeah, that, that's that's too much too much power concentrated in one area. I, I would I certainly long for the days when we had uh, real trust busters uh, in the government. I tell you what we need is another one of them Teddy Roosevelts. What about, have you seen the um, controversy over Star Wars McClunky? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah where they've, they've re-edited the Han Greedo scene again. And what's interesting is, this is not something Disney did, this is the last revision George Lucas did on all the Star Wars movies. Oh, so it's so it's something that he he was already doing when they when they bought it. It's not like another change that they did. He did one more pass on the first six Star Wars movies, meaning episodes one through six, um, because at one point they all were going to be converted to three D, 
and released in theaters as the 3D versions. Uh, the only one the public saw at large was The Phantom Menace, which didn't do nearly as well as they wanted it to. So they, they kind of... But they did do 3D conversions for at least uh, the prequel trilogy, and in fact screened 3D versions of um, at least Attack of the Clones at like Star Wars Celebration Europe or something. Hmm. I... I... I would love to see those movies in theaters again. Is there any reason why, like, how, how awesome would that be? Like, you've, you've got a, you've got enough movies in Star Wars now that, like, you could release, you could re-release one movie every month and just have it run for that month. How awesome would that be? A very limited number of theaters uh, in the United States, I would guess less than 20, is are doing, like, an all-day marathon of all the Star Wars films leading up to Episode Nine with episode nine being the last one. Uh, I think they having, should do things like that done, in more theaters. Having done one of those marathons back when we only had three Star Wars movies, that is one of the worst ways to watch Star Wars. I, I'm sure your back is like hurting by the end, sitting on the, especially you didn't have like the comfortable recliner seats like you do in a lot of movie theaters now. Theaters back then didn't serve beer. Um, yeah, like I... I, I the most I've done is a marathon in a theater, not counting, you know, buying one ticket and then seeing five movies in a day sneaking around the staff, uh, <laughs> uh, is uh, at SCAD, I believe, uh, I saw Fellowship of the Rain and the Two Towers back to back, which was, I think, a good, like, five hours or something. It's pretty long. And it was, um, yeah, I, I agree, like, not a great experience. The prints were, were kind of beat up. The sound wasn't good. Um, I would have liked some sort of, I don't know if I, a and a is the right thing, but kind of a lecture at the beginning, I think could have been nice for context or, or something. Yeah. It just felt like kind of like a half-assed experience. I've heard, um, some, some of the smaller movie theaters, where I've even seen bars do this. They do a movie night where instead of getting the prints, they kind of do it on the slide by just playing a DVD player to a shitty projector in a room and showing it on a wall. Oh yeah. I've uh, seen that happen. Uh-huh. Um, so, um, but, but speaking of the Disney Fox stuff, I mean, I think one thing that apparently when, when Fox was still Fox and I, I want to clarify when I say Fox, I mean the Fox movies, movies and television, not the news or the sports networks, which are still their individual entity. Um, yeah, let, let's say you, you owned a movie theater thrasher and you wanted to show a Fox movie like, uh, Alien Resurrection, you would call yeah. Fox and, and ask for a print if they could give you a print to show or a digital version, and they would be fairly accommodating to a point. But now now with the Disney acquisition, I've been uh, reading rumblings on, online that Disney is saying, like, oh, these films are no longer available for theatrical screening. Like, they have a big oh, that clamp sucks. on stuff, which is bad for film history and birthing new film fans. and uh, But also, like... You're not going to make money if you don't make the movie available. Right. Uh, in fact, sometimes when, when they do these kind of, I guess you could call them like legacy screenings or showing a classic as a midnight movie, uh, our friends at the Super Mario Brothers, the movie uh, webpage, you remember them? The unofficial webpage? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, did, did a screening, I think, of Super Mario Brothers. They've been doing it the past few years. They did it for like the 19th anniversary. And they sold so many tickets that first night. Disney said, like, you know what, like, keep on showing it over the weekend. Because <laughs> it, it actually had far better interest than uh, they would have expected. So, um, 
I, I'm not I'm not joking. If that movie was screening in a theater I could get to, I would totally go see that movie again in the theaters. I have an unironic love for that movie. Yeah, just the the production design alone. Um, a lot of the people that did Blade Runner worked on that film, and and you can tell uh, that it was one huge. <laughs> Uh, the city was one big set in this old cement factory that wasn't really safe for them to be filming in, but that uh, you might recall there was a shot where Bowser is taking a mud bath in his jacuzzi thing. And from outside, you can see the street like that's not CG. They built the set in such a way where all of that could be done in camera in one shot. <laughs> so certainly, um, God, that, that was a big, Rant. What was the old Dennis Miller thing? I don't mean to get off on a rant here, but yeah. <laughs> uh, then he would fo- follow that up with quack up a key, quack quack, cha cha. It's like the sword of Damocles is hanging over my head, right, babe? Uh, one of the funniest things. Bark, 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 bark. Yeah, one of the funniest things I've ever seen is Dana Carvey's audition for SNL includes him doing an imitation of Dennis Miller, and later, <laughs> uh, when he was on the cast, uh, Dennis Miller did the news um, for a, a time, and he was actually pretty good at it. Dana Carvey just saunters up next to him dressed as Dennis Miller and starts talking like him. And Dennis Miller has no idea it's happening. It's very, very funny. There's a bit where it's Dennis Miller, Dana Carvey as Dennis Miller, and one other person is Dennis Miller. And I don't remember who that third person was. But they do like, they sing Christmas carols as the Dennis Miller trio. That's pretty great. It might have been David Spade, now that I think about it. That's good. How fascinating. Uh, Anything else you want to get off your chest about... Disney Plus. Um, so I like that there's a streaming service that has old stuff on it. Yeah, uh, fair. I am sure. always trying to find because it's really tricky. Because like the, like all the black and white movies I want to watch, very few of them are in the public domain. So you, very hard to find them on YouTube. Um, so this this is finally giving me an opportunity to just sit down, and watch, and appreciate some really old stuff, including. Some including some old cartoons in the 30s, 40s, and 50s that I haven't seen in decades, um, and I'm I'm really l- like going back to the craft of animation. But I do think this service was launched prematurely. They don't have their search function figured out. The way they have things sort of organized into these collections seems very slapdash and arbitrary. Um, like for instance, they like they have a Darth Vader collection. It's just every Star Wars movie. Uh, yeah, and and you think if you're gonna do a, a catered list like a Darth Vader collection, maybe list I don't know episodes of Star Wars Rebels where Darth Vader is a character. Mm. Yeah, I guess that and yeah, and the episodes being out of order that's a big issue uh, for me. Uh, and like and just like beyond that, I I want I guess I want more like historical stuff like I. So Leonard Moulton did these introductions for a lot of uh, DVD releases of, of di- old Disney cartoons. They were in the metal tins, right? I, oh, yeah, those, those, tin, mm-hmm. those uh, silver tin boxes. I really wish I could watch those on this service. Like, if, if I'm going to watch one of the old cartoons he did an intro for, I would love the option to play with intro because I find those to be so insightful. And with a lot of really old stuff it can be really useful to know the historical context, whether it's just an interesting historical anecdote or an explanation of like, like for instance, there, there is, there is some racist stuff in a lot of the really old cartoons. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of, it's, it's more, more than just, you know, calling it out for its racism. 
I think it's really helpful to have an explanation of why that kind of stuff may have very well been common back in the day, regardless of because it's not it's not right that any of that stuff happened, but regrettably that is it, it kept happening. There's a reason why some of those stereotypes persisted, uh, and sometimes that reason is writers were lazy and went for cheap laughs. Uh, it's interesting you say that. I've been listening to um, it's it's generally a film history podcast called You Must Remember This. And they're currently have a multi-part series on Son of the South. And they make a connection uh, I, I've never made before, but once I, I heard it, I couldn't unsee it. And I want to get your thoughts on it. That characters oh. like uh, Mickey Mouse are modeled after blackface to a degree with the gloves. Well, it's, with it's the, funny. I mean, stuff like Bosco, it's that, more cause... obvious. But Mickey Mouse, I never well, made the connection. And I'm like, oh, they're not wrong. Oh, no, no. Bo- Bosco, if we're talking about the old Warner Brothers character, mm-hmm. Bosco, no, that clearly was meant to be a minstrel, a minstrelsy character, especially if you watch Bosco the Talking the talking Kid, which was made as a proof of concept for Warner Brothers, but was never meant to be seen by the public. That's straight up what he is. Um, and with, like, with Mickey Mouse, that is something, I, I have heard that, and it's something that is much more obvious uh, if you look at the old cartoons from the 30s. But yeah, Mickey Mouse does have all the earmarks of a minstrel character. He has the the oversized yellow gloves, well, when color was added to him, uh, black skin, big white area around the mouth and eyes. I mean, he, let, let's be fair. If without, he barely looks like a mouse. Like no mouse looks like that in any way, except for the big ears. Um, and the tail, yeah, like that—that's that's there. Yeah, and I mean, also right his personality is—you uh, know—he's he's kind of a, a rascal. He's he, he's a trickster. He's horny as hell. Well, like initially, yes, yes they, yeah. they f- faded that out in the in by the fifties. They had really faded, phased all that out. Another thing, watching watching the old cartoons and shows to watch out for is how rapey they are when watched through a modern uh, lens. I was a bit surprised. I was enjoying a, a glass of Merlot, uh, eating some Frosted Flakes, because, of course, that goes together, and watching um, <laughs> one of the more obscure Disney features. Uh, I think Make Mine Music. It's when they did those features that were just a collection of short films, theatrical shorts, uh, done originally for the film. And, and this was uh, the first bit, I think, was... Um, a man and a woman are, are ice skating and the man's kind of flirting with the woman and he keeps trying to like goose her, like like reach up her dress and, and touch her or something. I mean, like a lot of shots of her ass. Like I was, I was a bit surprised and I had to remind myself, well, it is the forties and all of this. And it's not like it's explicit. It's not like it's a, it's dirty or anything, but it, it was, it was a different time. And I would have liked one of those intros for something like this. In fact, I took a picture of my TV screen and tweeted it out to Leonard Moulton and his daughter, Jesse Moulton, saying, like, I'm watching a mediocre Disney film, drinking wine and eating Frosted Flakes. Am I doing this right? And uh, Leonard Moulton's <laughs> daughter, Jesse, responded and said, hell yes, which was uh, nice. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, like, there, there was a lot of rampant and overt sexism uh, at that time. Uh, and and beyond that, you can tell when a horny animator is working on something. Uh, there's a lot of horny animators. I'll just leave it at that. There, there's a reason why, like up until the '60s, half of all animated female characters were based on Mae West. Does that include Betty Boop? Uh, no, she uh, she is not modeled after Mae West. Got it. Um, and with uh, 
yeah, I mean, they, they have, you know, all, all those Disney features are on Disney Plus. You have uh, the the shitty direct-to-video sequels. Or I presume most of them are shitty. I haven't seen a whole lot of them. I wa- tried watching <laughs> part of Bambi 2, which has Patrick Stewart as Bambi's father. It's an interquel, see, where the father has to raise the son by himself. And... <laughs> so you, you mentioned those sequels. So in the early 2000s, uh, I had a, a wonderful, uh, I had a, a, a professor, and he... He used to work in animation before he became a, a professor, and he had a very good friend of his was the person in charge of the direct-to-video and DVD Disney sequels of the time. And what he told us from what he heard from Disney animators, nobody liked working on those movies. Weren't some of them done, like, in Florida or Canada or... Uh, I think some were done at the short-lived uh, Florida Disney yeah. Animation Studio, but like they they rejected them for the same reason we did. These movies are classics. You don't need more movie. Uh, you're you you want us to work Disney magic with no budget? Like no no one wanted to do those movies. Everybody wanted to be doing more innovative things and telling new stories and, and revisiting classic stories in feature animation. In fact, some of these direct-to-video uh, sequels weren't. You know, they were uh, meant to, they were the first two episodes of what would have been a TV series. It just never got picked up, uh, which is what happened. Oh, yeah, like uh, Atlantic like New Groove, which we covered. <laughs> yes, or Atlantic. Well, actually, that did get a TV show as a sort of about a younger one about him going to well, school or. Well, we got the Emperor's New School, school. but yeah, that that's was a quite different series. Also, um, uh, the uh, Atlantis uh, direct to video sequel was a. It was just a collection of episodes for a TV show that never got off the ground. So, huh. you know, direct-to-video sequels is backdoor pilots. Okay, so so that's that's one thing I am looking forward to is revisiting some of Disney's greatest mistakes. They do not have the Aladdin animated series, but they do have uh, Emperor's New School. Whoa. They have the uh, Winnie the Pooh '90s uh, cartoon, which is pretty good. Um, How can you not have the Aladdin animated series? I, I don't know. That that surprises me. They have. Um, Aladdin. Yeah, there are some strange absences. Uh, I, I'm not sure if the Little Mermaid series is on there. They do have the classic Disney afternoon stuff uh, all the way up to Bonkers. They have Gargoyles, uh, and oh, yeah. with season three available for the first time ever um, on DVD. The only season one and two were released. I understand season three is not canon, but I like that it's there nonetheless. <laughs> And, uh, well, in a series that's been out of production for decades, what is the what, what difference does it make whether or not it's canon? Uh, the showrunner of Gargoyles, or the uh, made you know later did a graphic novel of what his season three would have been, but I I don't know. It, it's the idea of canon just gives me a headache uh, more often than not. Um, I, I also would like to rewatch Star Wars on the service to see if there's any other. Changes. I, it's been the color correction is different from what's on the Blu-rays. The Blu-rays had more saturated colors, and this has it look more natural looking, like it did in the theater, where you know the blues aren't super blue or the red don't you know aren't red to the point of bleeding. Um, but yeah, I the service was launched prematurely. I will completely agree with that, and I, I will just say really quick: Star Wars Mandalorian is more delightful than it has any right to be. Because I'm not a bounty hunter guy. I'm not a Boba Fett fan. Uh, and this isn't about Boba Fett. This is about someone else with similar armor. But It's about a character by the name of Man DeLorean. Yeah. Reminds me of Samurai no, Jack no, a seen... little bit. Oh, no, well, I... 
okay, skip skip ahead five minutes in case you're spoiler sensitive. But it looks like what this show is going to be is Lone Wolf and Cub in yeah. Star Wars, yep. and that's a goddamn brilliant idea. Yeah, no, I, I thought the same thing, and uh, yeah, I was watching the the first two episodes with uh, Havana, and the first episode, like she's like. Oh, this isn't a. This guy's not a bad guy, is he? And I'm like, well, he's a bounty hunter, and it's like, sure, sounds like a bad guy. And she kind of rolled her eyes. But then at the end of the first episode, where the the baby Yoda <laughs> alien is visible, that's when she started getting really interested, and uh, she she liked the second episode much more than the first. Oh, the second episode is is very very confident. It's it's directed by uh, Rick uh, Famuyiwa, who did Talk to Me. He's also directed some episodes of The Flash. He, that that second episode is exceptionally directed. I, I was just I was having flashbacks of of uh, having flashbacks of of the original Star Wars, but also uh, also Kurosawa, Kurosawa yes, movies yeah. and like like the best of the samurai and Western influences that went into Star Wars are, are just b- born new in that second episode. I cannot praise Rick uh, Famuyiwa enough. And uh, the, the score by Ludwig Göransson, who uh, we heard do music for like Creed and, and some stuff like that, uh, is also very good. It, it sometimes has whistling in it. You know, it, it, the the Western Italian uh, spaghetti Western uh, influence is clear. I mean, I, it'll be interesting to see how how the rest of this uh, series plays out. I am looking for looking forward to it, but. Right now, I feel like I'm enjoying The Mandalorian more than I've enjoyed any new Star Wars output over the past five years. It's the most enjoyable Star Wars thing I've seen since Rogue One. Hmm. But let's uh, let's get into our sequel scene for ah, yes, Dracula. Yes. So why don't you set the stage? So what we, yeah, so this is, uh, this is right before the climax of the film... Uh, this is, I believe this is after, yes, this is after they've determined that Dracula's a vampire, after he shattered the mirror in the uh, humidor, and so this is the, uh, this is the showdown, the big showdown between, uh, Van Helsing and Dracula, where Van Helsing proves that he can't be mesmerized right before Dracula makes his final move on Mina Harker. Uh, would you mind if I played, uh, Dracula? Go for it. Are you gonna, how are you gonna play him? Uh, I'm going to try to do justice to Lugosi, okay. but there is only one Lugosi. So. I will do Van Helsing in the style of Christopher Lee. Oh, cool. So, uh, let's go. So here we are. We're in the parlor. Van Helsing. Van Helsing turns to face Count Dracula. Now that you have learned what you have learned, it would be well for you to return to your own country. I prefer to remain and protect those whom you would destroy. You are too late. My blood now flows through her veins. She will live through the centuries to come as I have lived. Should you escape us? Dracula, we know how to save Mina's soul, if not her life. If she dies by day, but I shall see that she dies by night. And I will have Carfax Abbey torn down stone by stone, excavated a mile around. I will find your earth box and drive that stake through your heart. Come here. Dracula raises his hand to hypnotize Van Helsing. Come here. 
Van Helsing takes three hypnotized steps towards Dracula, but soon steps back, resisting Dracula's hypnotic power over him. Your will is strong, Van Helsing. Van Helsing reaches out for his crucifix as Dracula looms towards him. More wolfsbane? More effective than wolfsbane, Count. Indeed. Dracula lunges towards Van Helsing. Van Helsing holds up the crucifix. Dracula snarls and turns away. Van Helsing, in triumph, puts away the crucifix. I love that scene. That's a great moment between the two characters. It is. Um, I also made my narration voice intentionally sound like a bad book on tape uh, children's (laughs) narrator. Turn the page when you hear the sparkly sound effect. <laughs> Doodly dee. Yep. The chimes. Yeah, the chimes. Uh, anytime you hear. This, this is great. Anytime you hear Greedo oh. say McKeady, or. I can ruin the own McCulky. joke. Yeah. God. <laughs> oh, so, uh, uh, fun Star Wars aside, uh, I ran a Star Wars one shot at a gaming day in our local library. Uh, it was all pre made characters. The smuggler captain was named Fells Naptha, and nobody noticed. Hmm. I don't even know what that's a reference to myself. Oh, that that is a that is a brand of wa- of washing soap, which can be re. It's it's basically soap for people who want to make their own soap. You can use it as a base for d- dish detergent, clothes detergent, floor scrub. It's a, it's a multi-purpose old-timey soap. It's like a product that's been around <laughs> since like the 1910s, probably before then. It just occurred to me, it's a product that's name sounds like a Star Wars name. If I did a quiz show, that would be the quiz show, Star Wars or anything. I would give you a name, mm. and you have to figure out, is it a name for something in Star Wars, or is it anything else? Yeah, I, I once was at uh, a gas station, and in the bathroom, instead of liquid soap, it was just powder that came out in your hands, huh. and you washed your hands with that. It was a very old, tiny way to do it. It's like like a delousing dust. Yes, uh, it was very gritty. Felt bad on the hands. Well, very good. All right. So um, next time on Sequel Cast Two, we'll be looking at the sequel, Dracula's Daughter. Uh, you can. Oh man, I cannot wait. I I am really grooving on this 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 series. It's it's just it's fun. It's fun to be reviewing an undeniable classic. Right. Um, and. With Dracula's daughter, um, the stuff they get away in that is, is quite um, intriguing. It's, I think it's tackling some things that you didn't see in a lot of films. We'll, we'll definitely have to talk um, about the production codes a bit more mm-hmm. in that episode. Certainly. Um, and follow the show on Twitter at SequelCast2. Leave us a piping hot review on Apple Podcast app. You can also listen to us on Stitcher. Um, follow me on Twitter at MATWBT and... Uh, Go to Amazon and buy my book, The Books of Uwe Boll, Volume 1, The Video Game Films. So you can follow me on Twitter, at Internet Mayor. Uh, also, check out uh, Drive Through RPG. Just search for uh, William Thrasher. You can support me by picking up any of the books I've worked on, uh, either as a writer or illustrator, or in some cases, both. So for Sequel Cast 2, uh, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Shane. Aren't you glad we got through the whole episode without going blah blah? I would have rather said banana. Mm-hmm.